I often forget to mention things that might be triggering, but I am not going to forget that today. This episode will have examples of now out-of-date language, especially when it comes to describing transgender people. If that is not your cup of tea, you can always skip past uh, this episode or come back to it at your leisure. Okay, on to the show. Well, it is the last History Hump Day of September. I hope that all of you queer history fans are enjoying this time of year. For people in the Northern Hemisphere, autumn has finally begun. The leaves in the trees will soon start their dramatic color changes and nights will fall earlier with each passing day. I find that having a few candles lit at night with a hot cup of barley tea can bring on that feeling of hygge, the Danish and Norwegian concept of coziness. Well, that's the most accurate translation to English, but it's not quite perfect. But the feeling is. Okay, so enough on the small talk. I have to do with the job. I'm Julian Rushbrook, your host of this wonderful podcast, The History Most Queer. If this is your first time listening in, I want to welcome you. If you've listened before, welcome back. This is a podcast that takes a look at history, culture, and myths from a decidedly queer perspective. This month, or rather September 15th through October 15th, is Hispanic American Heritage Month. So to honor all of our queer Hispanic figures from history and mythology, we will be taking a weekly dive into some of their stories. Last week, we explored the life of actor Cesar Romero. This week, we are looking at an artist whose talents are both literary as well as visual. The poet, painter, playwright, and author we will be exploring today is Red Jordan Arobato. He was a transgender artist and activist that expressed himself prolifically in the realms of erotica and art, as well as activism. His works would document and celebrate the lives of sex workers, queer street life, as well as taking a profound look into the realities of poverty. Red was born in Chicago on the 15th of November, 1943. His mother was an African-American woman, and his father was an immigrant from Honduras. He was assigned female at birth and was raised as a girl. His home life was rather chaotic, with his mother being abusive toward him. To process the violence, he started to write poetry at the age of 13. When he was 15, he came upon some pulp magazines that had lesbian themes. With this little spark, he saw himself reflected in the stories. It was at that point that he started to identify as a butch lesbian. It is interesting how people often cut off from having role models that are like them must slowly but surely be the role models for themselves. In the case of Red, 
he, with each new self-discovery, would move closer to a more honest and nuanced understanding of his identity. Yes, for a time he saw himself as a lesbian woman. But as time passed and he learned more of himself and the world, that butch lesbian identity would transform and become the trans man that he truly was. As with several of the people that have been examined in this podcast, our understanding of their identities can be a bit difficult to truly pin down. On the one hand, it may be because identity in general is hard to truly define with our limited languages. On the other, it could be because of the distance of time. Thankfully, with this particular subject matter, we get to follow him through his life as he starts to understand and clearly define himself. But likewise, for us as people learning about ourselves, we often have to acquire new vocabulary to get to the root of who we are. This is why if a person identifies one way or another, but later in time expands that or moves it a little along one spectrum or another, we have to be supportive, loving, and respectful of their journey as we would hope they would be regarding our own. Okay, end of sermon. Let's get back to Red's life. Now, his name Red came from the fact that he dyed his hair red and loved the name, so the dye job and the name stuck. I think that it's fun, and I'm a bit jealous of people with red hair being able to go by the name of Red. If someone were to try having the nickname of Black, Brown, Blonde, or Gray, it would just not exactly feel right. In his adolescence, he developed alcoholism from hanging around queer dive bars and being out on the street due to his family situation. When he was 17, he was able to get away from the abuse inflicted upon him by his mother when his parents divorced and he moved in with his father. The next year, he would go off to college but only stayed for a year. He would soon thereafter move to New York City, but would in the end settle in San Francisco in 1967, where he would live out the rest of his life. Mostly, his reason for staying there was the queer-friendly atmosphere of the city. Not only was it a beacon for the hippies and other countercultural elements of that decade, but queer folks had been drawn to that town for decades. This was in large part due to it being a port and having a naval base there as well. Many queer people from more sheltered or rural parts of the country would decide to stay there after their lives in the military ended. Like those soldiers and sailors before him, Red would find a welcoming community. And like those early pulp stories, he would find others like himself and would likewise have the freedom to explore within himself and without. His life in San Francisco, if it were to be described in just one word, would have to be eclectic. In 1969, he would establish the Gay Women's Liberation which was an organization that devoted itself to feminist and lesbian activist efforts. This organization was also concerned with the safety of its members, and so 
Red would teach self-defense in the form of karate to the people in this group. He would have various jobs throughout his life, from teaching karate to nursing work, factory jobs, and even office clerical work. All of these jobs were, in the end, to help fund his writing. His first novel, The Bars Across Heaven, was published in 1975. It centers on a biracial lesbian named Flip. This butch woman looks for love and sex in San Francisco, all while a voice in her head keeps trying to shut her down, saying that, as a woman of color, she does not deserve love. I do wonder how much of this story is autobiographical. Due to the often graphic subject matters in his poems, short stories, and novels, he would often have to publish his works by himself, which was a bit harder to do before Amazon and the internet. The costs would have been high, especially considering the low distribution rate of his works. They were transgressive forms of literature as they centered on the lives of women who loved women. Men were not the centers of this universe. He was a one-man operation. Writing, publishing, advertising, and distribution was all done by himself. Relying on lesbian bars, the streets, and music stores to stock his works kept things local for a time, but his prodigious work would filter out, increasing his notoriety. The street-lit genre that he would often write in dates back to the 1930s and continues to this present day. It ties in with rap music and even black exploitation films from the 60s and 70s, and is evident when looking at the themes present across the different art forms. Sex, violence, systemic poverty, and crime are heavily explored in Street Lit. The honest, often raunchy style of his form of writing would be hard to sell to a publisher. That is not even taking into account the fact that the literature was mostly produced by black writers. It was not impossible to find publishers that were not scared away by black themes, but there was more than just race involved in hindering people like Red's publication. Finding queer publishing houses that would be willing to work with him was likewise difficult. The strong sexual themes were difficult for them to take on, especially considering the nascent gay liberation movements that were springing up across the United States. There was still a lingering feeling with many in the early days of the gay liberation to try to appear as respectable as possible in the hopes that the dominant heteronormative culture would become more amenable to queer rights. This same mentality was what pushed people like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera to the margins of a movement in New York that, were, that they were integral in founding. Still, like Sylvia and Marsha, Red continued to express himself artistically, although he would find himself in poverty his entire life. 
Thankfully, he was not deterred by all of these setbacks. The queer publishing houses were more inclined to publish works that were for the consumption of the social elites, but Red's audience was found on the street, in lesbian bars, not in poshly appointed libraries. He would comment on this in an interview. Most of my characters are not set in academia. They're not doctors. They're not professionals. Instead, these subjects would be cruising for sex and love in bars and working difficult and low-paying jobs. He continues, History books tell us a lot about the lives of upper-class women such as Gertie Stein and Alice B., but very little of the underprivileged lesbian factory workers, queer servants, and tranny seamstresses. There's a whole group of dykes to whom these characters, these books, may appeal. Aside from writing, he would have a dramatic change of faith after the death of his father in 1973, having been an atheist for years. This shift in his cosmological worldview was not necessarily seen as a positive thing by those around him at the time. This was, after all, during the period of an ever-emboldening evangelical Christian right in the United States. At every turn, when small victories happened for the LGBTQIA community, it was always met with enormous resistance from the evangelical community. Still, the man would preach on the streets, often with an armful of his own erotic literature under his arm. I suppose it might seem a bit contradictory for someone to talk about his Christian faith while also writing poetry about randy lesbians. For Red Jordan Oroboto, there was no conflict between his spirituality and his art. Now, I'll probably just go back and kind of restate this, but at this point, Red still thought of himself and presented as a lesbian woman. It would not be until the 1990s that he would transition, having gender confirmation surgeries and start referring to himself as a trans man. In 1984, he would appear, along with Allen Ginsberg, Audre Lorde, and others, in the documentary film Before Stonewall by Greta Schiller. The film focused on queer community prior to the Stonewall Uprisings of 1969. It would go on to win a number of awards, including an Emmy. Now, this would not be the last time that he would appear in films that documented the lives of queer, but especially trans folk. It is strange to me that someone who was so prominent in the community would find himself in poverty, even being homeless for a time. Still, despite insecurity in his income and housing, as well as a marriage that would end, he kept working. His work would start to reach Canada in the 21st century, and this was because the country had very strict pornography laws, and so much of Red's works could not be shipped up north. So let's jump back a little bit in time. As I mentioned before, Red would transition in the 1990s, and it was in this decade that he truly blossomed. His novels now found a publishing house, and his prominence grew in queer literary circles, 
it's kind of strange that while he always wrote for the working class and would often have had contempt for the more elite elements of queer culture, now he would find himself starting to be praised by those very people who a few decades before could not bother to browse through even one of his short stories. I suppose the shift was one that was occurring more broadly in the culture. As a society, the lives of the poor were now being seen as possessing a beauty that, for Red, had been there all along. In a volume of his works, My Continued Journey into Artistic and Spiritual Revolutionary Thoughts, he wrote, If you've ever been down on the abject bottom of society, you will be looking up as if out of a deep pit towards a faint lighted window exit and know absolutely from within the chilly bones of your being that this situation is wrong, that this situation needs to be turned up and reversed so that all of us down here clamoring and crawling over each other in mayhem in the slime of the refuse pit would be suddenly sitting on top out in the clean air, the free air, with food, with plenty, with peace, and the few ghouls, bloodsuckers, who are our jail wardens, as their fortunes necessitated, would be cast down into this uttermost pit. My journey into revolutionary thought begins here, at the bottom of the pit. Between the pointers and observations of the fine arts are these gestures of a revolutionary, nascent, pacing in the pit down here in the bottom of the flesh, and barely a crack of light from that far-off window, to give me hope that we might one day escape. Even with more elite recognition, he did not pull any punches. He wrote about the realities of life for queer people living and working on the streets. Drug use was often mentioned as a method to cope with the real struggles of life. His own life reflected this as well, as he would use drugs for years before giving them up after a hospitalization. By 2013, he had painted some 60 paintings. The expressionistic style like his written works, dealt with themes of sex, class, mixed-race identity, and isolation. Christian themes were also present, as well as themes that dealt with science and medicine and how they work together, especially as regards medical transition. He would find love in his life, meeting and eventually living with his partner, Delilah Jasper, she was a belly dancer and would often perform at his book readings. In 2019, he would enter a queer-friendly retirement community, where he would die on the 25th of November, 2021, at the age of 78. His legacy is an enormous volume of written work and paintings. Three collections of poetry, ten plays, Seven collections of short stories, and over 65 novels make up his writings. Thankfully, 
His works have, over the past few years, been coming more to the fore. And of course, his influence in street lit and lesbian and transgender erotica is probably truly impossible to quantify. If you want to see his visual artwork, come visit A History Most Queer on Instagram. For even more of his paintings, you can visit Fine Art America, and there are many more images there of his work. It would be a fool's errand to list each of his works and then talk about them, so perhaps a few that you can go check out if you're interested are these. Laughter of the Witch, The Age of Alm, and The Iron Woman are his three poetry collections. One of his short story collections to look into is titled Susie Q. As for his novels, he has a collection of dire entries titled Ladies Auxiliary of the Left. Of his fiction, you may want to take a look at The Black Viper, Post Roll, or How's Mars. Of course, all of that is just a start with such a large oeuvre. I think that brings this dip into Red Jordan Oroboto's life to an end. I hope that you found it enlightening and that you might want to read some of his writing. As I mentioned earlier, Instagram will have pictures of the artist in some of his paintings. And you can message the podcast there. Or if you want to write something longer, you can send an email to a history most queer at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, I would love it if you could rate it on whatever platform that you're finding it on. This will help others like you who are searching the interwebs for a bit of queer history and culture. Take care of yourself out there in this mad, mad world, and I look forward to bringing you more queer history stories next week. Bye-bye. What? <laughs>